It's a great honor to welcome a longtime friend of the Lumen Christi Institute, Professor Regina Schwartz of Northwestern University. Um, she's taught at, um, she was the Tipton, Tipton Distinguished Visiting Professor in Religious Studies at the University of California at Santa Barbara. Um, she much prefers the kind of weather we have this week. She's the author of Remembering and Repeating on Milton's Theology and Poetics, which won the James Holly Hartford Hanford Book Award, The Curse of Cain, The Violent Legacy of Monotheism, which was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize, Sacramental Poetic, Poetics at the Dawn of Secularism, and the book she was just finished, she has just finished, which explores questions of justice from the Bible to Shakespeare. I believe she's also an um, adjunct professor at the law school at, the, at Northwestern University. So again, we're going to take a vote, so please pay attention to the lecture today. Love your enemies, retribution, and forgiveness. Thank you, Tom, and thank all of you for coming out tonight when you have so many things to do. Um, I can't wait for the vote. Um, so let me begin with a little epigraph. Uh, this is from Nietzsche. He who fights with monsters should look to it that he himself does not become a monster. And another one from Leviticus 19. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone, but love your neighbor as yourself. That's quite familiar. Sometimes justice is an idea that people use to hurt other people. They inflict harm to satisfy justice. That's an odd metaphor suggesting that justice may be hungry and need to be fed some juicy morsels or satisfied. Nietzsche wrote that high-sounding talk about justice may only be a cover for vindictiveness. These cellar rodents full of vengefulness and hatred, what have they made of revenge and hatred? Have you heard these words uttered? If you trusted simply to their words, he writes, would you suspect you were among men of resentment? His interlocutor responds, I understand. I'll open my ears again, oh, oh, and close my nose, because now I can really hear what they've been saying all along. We good men, we are the just. What they desire they call not retaliation, but the triumph of justice. What they hate is not their enemy, no, they hate injustice. Kant adds, we like to flatter ourselves with a false claim to a more noble motive, but in fact we can never, even by the strictest examination, completely plumb the depths of the secret incentives of our actions. The kind of justice that would be satisfied by harming another is justice as retribution, and the satisfaction of such justice is achieved by punishment. What are the chief arguments of retribution? One of the most persistent is that if someone injures another, the injurer deserves to be punished. There seems to be a widespread intuition that just as those who do good should be rewarded, so those who do harm should be punished. But why? On what grounds? It turns out that such intuitions rest on surprisingly little grounding. Those who support the idea that we should punish wrongdoers hurt the herders, often argue that this desire for retribution is foundational and it needs no further explanation. They describe it as natural. 
but without a plausible reason for hurting the injurer, it's difficult to justify. Just as high-sounding talk of justice may only mask revenge, so high-sounding talk of just punishment often masks responses in excess of the crime. Why do we punish so hard and so much? Why are prisons dehumanizing and overfull? Rage is partly responsible, as well as the culture's ready confusion between wrongful acts and wrongdoers. This stems from our understanding of the human person. Our criminal justice system is built on the anthropology that humans are freely choosing moral agents. Understanding criminality as taking place in a realm of freedom is part of the liberal story. Its forebear is Kant, who believes the moral law must be followed independent of social context or inclination, that infractions of it must be punished according to the iniquity. His fury is directed not against the wrongdoer so much as against the injury to the moral order itself. Hence, for the sake of justice, he endorses merciless retribution. Kant's bloodthirsty passages on retribution are in his Metaphysical Elements of Justice, where he writes, judicial punishment can never be used merely as a means to promote some other good for the criminal himself or for civil society, but instead it must in all cases be imposed on him only on the ground that he has committed a crime. After all, criminals freely choose to do wrong. But to what extent is this freedom of choice a fiction? As a noted legal scholar writes, it's no secret that certain social conditions are crimogenic, that those born to poverty and discrimination are far more likely to offend than those who are raised in or achieve high economic or social status. Nonetheless, the criminal law does little to discern how social disadvantage may constrain choice or to think about moral desert in light of social disadvantage. Under the regime of justice that claims to adjudicate right and wrong, some behaviors, regardless of social disadvantages, are considered just wrong. Again, there's a rampant confusion of the wrong deed with the wrongdoer. Bad behavior might mean bad person. Many theories of retribution rely not only on the belief, by the way, I should tell you that the origin of, of my interest in this talk was my getting a, a, a traffic uh, ticket and go, going to traffic court, but it turned out to not only be traffic court, there were other kinds of people being tried, and the judge was treating one guy who was manacled um, treated him really like a dog. I mean, she spoke to him. I, I mean, she, I'm sure she's nicer to her dog. And I was so taken aback at the treatment of this person that, you know, it led me down to thinking about why is retribution so. Anyway, many theories of retribution rely not only on the belief that an injurer deserves punishment, but also that the moral life is measurable and that each injury has a measurable compensation based on the ancient belief that injurers incur, in, injuries incur debts that must be paid or recompensed, this economic thinking explains why theories of retribution often assert that punishment is not only deserved, it must also be in proportion to the wrong. Proportionality can either be in kind, literally an eye for an eye, or symbolic, usually monetary. The rabbis concluded that lex talionis had to be a metaphor, that the intention was surely to pay back in proportion to the injury. In addition to the language of desert, then, retribution theories are chock full of the language of proportionality. And this is supposed to correct the excesses wrought by rage. Kant said that punishment should be proportional to the moral iniquity, the act and the motive, the inner viciousness. In such thinking, punishment becomes even a principle of fairness, 
Hegel said that criminals have a right to punishment, that it demonstrates that we respect them as responsible beings. Again, that respect is grounded on their ostensible freedom of will. Proportional thinking about punishment is often coupled to an emphasis on distribution. We've seen that in Aristotle's theory of retribution, the judge is the equalizer who takes something away from the injurer and gives it to the injured to equalize. But injury is not a good to be distributed or measured out in fair quantity. Incredibly enough, the master of categorization seems to have made an enormous category mistake. For him, the distribution of harm seems to work the same way as the distribution of goods. That is, he applied distributive justice to wrongs. Aristotle's hope, like Kant's, was that by spreading the injury around, making the victim into a victimizer and returning harm with harm, he could set the ethical order right. But punishment, which is justified here as correcting an imbalance, does not in fact correct harm. It only adds more harm. As Plato, Socrates forcefully maintained, injuries are harms to be avoided, period. Hence, any addition to injury, whether by a victim or by the state, results only in further harm, not in the restoration of any order. If the theory of retribution is based on the inchoate idea that one should be punished because it's deserved, that he must pay for wrongdoing, this is easily countered by the conviction that no one deserves to have harm done to him. It's a bizarre idea of wrongdoing that imagines that balancing harm in any way corrects injury instead of doubling it. An evil deed is not redeemed by an evil deed, cautioned Martin Luther King. For him, violence is immoral because it thrives on hatred rather than love, and he added violence is impractical because it's a descending spiral ending in destruction for all. It seeks to humiliate the opponent rather than win understanding. It seeks to annihilate rather than convert. It creates bitterness in the survivors and brutality in the destroyers. John Milton writes that revenge, at first though sweet, bitter ere long back on itself recoils, and he even includes Satan in that self-punishment of revenge, expressing the observation that the punisher ultimately punishes himself. Again, this is anticipated by Plato, for whom it is never just to harm anyone, for our goal is to cultivate virtue, and men become worse in human virtue when they are harmed. They become even worse in virtue when they do harm. How can Plato's insight differ so markedly from the intuitions of so many who uphold retribution? His notion of justice neither imagines paying back harms nor protecting transactions. Instead, for him, the purpose of justice is to order the soul and the city so that they can achieve their highest aims. His central metaphor for improving the character of persons is improving their health. No physician would treat an injury with another injury. Unlike the model of a bad person who should be punished, he depicts a hurting person who needs help. Unlike the freely choosing agent who embraces evil and must be defeated by our good, he depicts someone misguided, unable to see the good clearly. Plato, unlike so many others in his day and ours, does not buy into the idea that justice requires a concept of reciprocity at all. Social health is indeed a profound metaphor, comprehending the idea that when people inflict and receive pain, their health and the health of the social body is also impaired. When we see inflicting harm as the product of illness, we can spend the considerable resources on healing that we now devote to punishing and better address the ailing social health of our communal body. But as you know, Aristotle gained far more influence on this question. And ever since Aristotle, most theories of retribution imagine harm as measurable endorsing the concept that payment should be made in proportion to the crime and thinking of harm distributively too. 
They described this distribution of harm as a principle of fairness. This led to such remarkable theories as Richard Posner's Economics of Justice, which even assigns an economic value to rape. What can possibly repay such an injury? But as the bizarre idea of paying for rape so forcefully demonstrates, injury is not a good to be measured in fair quantities and made equitable. Injury is not a good to be distributed. Rather, injuring someone, inflicting harm on another, is a violation of the ethical order, and duplicating it only makes it doubly violated. Imagine raping the rapist. Efforts have been made to distinguish retribution from revenge. According to the philosopher Robert Nozick, retribution is done for a wrong, not an injury. Retribution sets a limit to punishment, whereas revenge is endless. Retribution involves satisfaction for justice being done, while the satisfaction of revenge is from hurting another. Retribution is governed by general standards, while revenge is governed by private ones. Retribution is impersonal, with the agent having no personal tie to the injurer, while revenge is deeply personal. Intentionality plays a key role in his understanding of retribution. Nozick describes a complicated structure in retribution whereby something intentionally is produced in another with the intention that he realize why it was produced and that he realize he was intended to realize all of this. But if the intention is for an intention to be understood as such, what retribution is doing above all is communicating, sending a message that is vital to be received. With punishment, this communication is done in an unwelcome way. Here's the first glitch in his theory. If the goal of communication is to be understood, this unwelcome way is likely to defeat the success of the communication. Messages that are delivered with doing harm are very likely to be resisted. I know I'm a mother. Nozick also argues that by retribution, someone is shown something by being presented it directly. If an act is wrong because of what it does to someone else, the most powerful way to show him what it does is to do the same to him, he argues. Here a more obvious problem with his thinking emerges, for such logic would play out in a way that's patently absurd. If one is maimed for life by a gunshot wound, the offender would also need to be maimed for life. If someone is robbed, the offender needs to be robbed. Again, doubling an offense in order to directly communicate doesn't teach anything. Nozick asserts the hope of retributive matching punishment is that the wrongdoer will realize his act was wrong when someone shows him that it was wrong and means it. But if this is how moral education is achieved by demonstrations of wrongdoing, then we're all in serious trouble. As he himself notes without taking the lesson, many child batterers were themselves battered children. Their defect is not ignorance of what it's like to be battered. Finally, Nozick argues, the wrongdoer has become disconnected from correct values, and the purpose of punishment is to reconnect him. In Hamlet, I'm skipping on, on purpose. I want your brain to go somewhere else. Shakespeare has written a sustained rumination on the problem of revenge, and it's no endorsement. The ghost requests that the young Hamlet avenge his father's murder issues in a bloodbath, and unlike Thomas Kidd's Spanish tragedy where revenge is imagined as satisfying justice, the rottenness in the state of Denmark is not righted. Instead, violence spreads like a contagion and the guiltless die with the guilty. There are many reasons why justice miscarries in Hamlet. Knowledge is uncertain, hegemonic power is infected, there's no legal force, and at its core the very demand to correct the injustice with revenge is impossible. The two temporal contexts for the play are now and eternity. The present cannot redo, undo, or change the past. 
And like the now, eternity makes a mockery of temporal justice. This is the thrust of the famous graveyard scene. Interestingly, the ghost who visits from the afterlife insists on Hamlet confronting the now. Now, Hamlet, here, tis given out that sleeping in my orchard a serpent stung me. But know, thou noble youth, the serpent that did sting thy father's life, now wears his crown. When the ghost asks Hamlet to avenge the crime, to make now impossibly pay for then, he carefully cordons off Hamlet's mother from such vengeance. But eventually, amidst Hamlet's tortured deliberations, he does seek out his mother. Tis now the very witching time of night, when churchyards yawn and hell itself breaks out contagion to this new world. Now I would drink hot blood and do such business as the bitter day would quake to look on, soft, now to my mother. The bitter day is the judgment day, so now is also implicated with eternity. Hamlet no sooner speaks of his bloodthirstiness, of drinking hot blood, than his thoughts turn to chastising his mother. But as he heads toward his room, he encounters Claudius at prayer. He works himself up to using his dagger, intones the impossible now, but eternity disarms him. Now might I do it, Pat, now he is praying, and now I'll do it. And so he goes to heaven, and so I am revenged. That would be scanned. A villain kills my father, and for that I, his sole son, do this same villain send to heaven? Oh, this is higher in salary, not revenge. Hamlet recoils at the summary of his own plot. Killing Claudius now would mean granting him eternity. But then we learn that the king's prayers were hollow, so that now Hamlet has missed his chance. The moment passes. Both now and eternity mock Hamlet's present project. Not only the impossible temporality of revenge is put under scrutiny in the play, but also the mode. Is this an act of physical violence or a verbal one? How are physical and verbal acts of retribution or of vengeance different and how related? Hamlet's vivid renditions of using his sword follow his aborted murder. But even as he puts up his physical sword, his words become lethal daggers. No, up sword, and know thou a more horrid hent. When he is drunk asleep, or in his rage, or in the incestuous pleasure of his bed, at gaming, swearing, or about some act that has no relish of salvation in it, then trip him that his heels may kick at heaven, and that his soul may be as damned and black as hell, whereto it goes. My mother stays, this physic but prolongs thy sickly days." Hamlet tries to mete out eternal justice with an imagined sword, leaving his victim's heels kicking at heaven and his soul damned to hell. The bloodthirst continues, unsatisfied, as his thoughts return to his mother. But here, despite his resolve to use words and not daggers, his mother picks up the real danger. He only forces her to look into a glass to see herself, and she responds fearfully that he's trying to murder her. Hamlet Come, come, and sit you down, you shall not budge. You go not till I set up a glass wherein you may see the inmost part of you. Queen Gertrude says, What wilt thou do? Wilt thou murder me? Help, ho! How quickly deeds become words and words are taken for deeds is manifest in the shocking events that follow. Polonius crying from behind the curtain, What ho, help, 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 Hamlet drawing, How now, a rat, dead for a ducat, dead, making a pass. Oh, what a rash and bloody deed is this, says the queen. Hamlet, a bloody deed, almost as bad, good mother, as kill a king and marry with his brother. As kill a king, says the queen. Hamlet, 
Aye, lady, twas my word. So there's deed and word all over the place here. Hamlet has ostensibly come to speak to his mother, dagger in hand, and finds an excuse to use his weapon, almost but not quite, on her. Instead, he stabs at the arras blindly, killing the innocent. He's just stabbed someone when he says, I, twas my word. The distinction between words and wounds is made often in the play, and as frequently collapses. This is because in Hamlet, words don't just represent blows. Words actually strike blows. O heart, lose not thy nature. Let not ever the soul of Nero enter this firm bosom. Let me be cruel, not unnatural. I will speak daggers to her, but use none. My tongue and soul in this be hypocrites. How in my words somever she be shent. Shent is the past participle for shend, which is rebuke. How in my words somever she be shent to give them seals, never my soul consent. Speaking daggers suggest that words can wound. The anxious distinction the children's nursery rhyme tries to make. Sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Belie, in fact, how deeply wounding words can be. The daggers of Hamlet's words do sink deep into his mother. O Hamlet, thou hast cleft my heart in twain. No physical violence against your mother, advised the ghost. Let the violence of thorns in her bosom prick and sting her. But here we have a hint that the violence of words harbors a force different from physical violence. In a play where daggers stab randomly through an arras, where deaths are accidental, as Horatio summarizes at the end, the deaths are carnal, bloody, there are unnatural acts, accidental judgments, casual slaughters, deaths put on by cunning and for no cause. In such a play, perhaps the daggers of words, the thorns and pricks of conscience, have some stronger force. During his sustained rebuke of his mother, Hamlet proceeds to make the distinction between Gertrude's worthless physical response of wringing her hands and the ethical response that he seeks with his own violent words. Leave wringing of your hands, peace, sit you down, and let me wring your heart. For so I shall, if it be made of penetrable stuff, if damned in custom have not brassed it so that it is proof and bulwark against sense. If her heart is not heartened, I'm sorry, hardened, brassed against feeling, then Hamlet will wring it. It's pretty astonishing rhetoric for a change of heart for enabling a change of heart. In the midst of this play's profound critique of revenge, something else is being offered here, rebuke. The ghost has forbidden Hamlet from harming his mother, leaving her punishment to God and her conscience. Hamlet's thereby expressly forbidden the classical path that one Orestes takes in Aeschylus's trilogy, killing his mother to avenge his father's murder, or the path of Nero, who had his mother, Agrippina, murdered for poisoning her husband and living with her brother. The ghost says, if thou hast nature in thee, bear it not. Let not the royal bed of Denmark be a couch for luxury and damned and incest. But howsoever thou pursues this act, taint not thy mind, nor let thy soul contrive against thy mother aught. Leave her to heaven and to those thorns that in her bosom lodge to prick and sting her. But while Hamlet may leave his mother's punishment to heaven, he does take her education upon himself. He deliberately substitutes his rebuke. Again, shent is the past participle of the archaic shend, to rebuke or scold. He deliberately substitutes that for bloodletting. Instead of stabbing her, he wrings her heart. And in this anti-revenge play where daggers are futile, the daggers of words are not futile. She does have a change of heart. 
The passage in the Bible that enjoins us to love the neighbor as ourselves also says, you shall not take vengeance against him. And further, you shall not even bear a grudge against him. Even vindictive feelings are anathema. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor and not bear sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance nor bear a grudge against your neighbor, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Leviticus 19, 17, 18. The injunctions against vengeance, against hating, and even against bearing a grudge, all alongside the command to love the neighbor, have here a notably odd companion, one that doesn't seem to fit. You shall surely rebuke your neighbor. Why? What purpose does rebuke serve? Maimonides offers an answer and does so in the context of commenting upon the love command of Leviticus. When a man sins against another, the injured party should not hate the offender and keep silent. His duty is to inform the offender and say to him, why did you do this to me? Why did you sin in this manner? And thus it is said, you shall surely rebuke your neighbor. If one observes that a person committed a sin or walks in a way that's not good, it's a duty to bring the erring man back to the right path and point out to him that he's wronging himself by his evil courses. If the offender repents and pleads for forgiveness, he should be forgiven. In the Gospel of Luke, we see Christ endorsing such rebuke. Take heed to yourselves. If thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. While Leviticus, Christ, and Maimonides are on the same page here, this idea of rebuke sounds foreign to modern ears. It can either suggest a version of social policing, images of Calvin's Geneva come to mind, or an ineffectual response to wrongdoing, maybe one soft on crime. How can rebuke really stop an offender? Furthermore, how can one possibly intervene to offer correction without infringing upon another's rights? Coercion for a person's own good or coercion for the perceived general long-range moral good of society are in most cases to be ruled out of our legal codes. Whatever rebuke is, it's another way, a third way. Neither retribution, oh, we're going to have to take a different vote here. Neither retribution, nor is it forgetting the crime. It is, I would suggest, however, part of the process, part of the work of forgiveness. A rebuke to the perpetrator has the potential to be restorative for one who's gone astray, for the principles regarded as just in the community, and restorative for the victim who's thereby not forced to sustain the insult of wrongdoing unrecognized. Perhaps this embrace of rebuke is part of what makes comprehensible that otherwise incomprehensible command of Jesus to love the enemy. What then is forgiveness? Most definitions are negative. It's not succumbing to resentment, vindictiveness, or the desire to punish. But forgiveness also includes a positive meaning derived from its Old English etymology, for geifen, geifen to give, and for, completely. That is extreme giving. In this sense, forgiveness suggests more than simply overcoming resentment or reasoning beyond a will to punish. Forgiveness adds the positive goal of restoration. What is given granted is acknowledgement of the wrongdoer's remorse, and what is granted thereby is the opportunity for restoration in a disrupted, broken relationship. This is extreme giving. The way I'm depicting it, forgiveness is not a unilateral act. It involves two. 
It is one's response to another's apology. Nor is it an isolated act. It's part of a process that can include rebuke, acknowledgement of wrongdoing, remorse, and apology from the perpetrator and the response of forgiveness from the injured. Without such recognition of wrongdoing and without such remorse, forgiveness would have no meaning. It would be an empty gesture. But with them, forgiveness is performative. That is, the very act of forgiveness not only acknowledges the restoration of broken relations, it itself restores them. Forgiveness, not revenge, occupies the front and center of the biblical tradition's response to wrongdoing with different religious traditions offering different paths to that goal. This is surprising to people who have the um, kind of knee-jerk anti-Semitic idea that the God of the Hebrew Bible is a God of vengeance instead of forgiveness, but we'll go into that later. In medieval Judaism, the wrongdoer's change of heart enabled a sincere apology. There were standards to discern this, and this change of heart was the precondition for forgiveness. One had a duty to forgive only if the offender sincerely repented and sought reconciliation. Where the individual involved is reticent to acknowledge the harm done, one has a further obligation to rebuke them in order to prompt them to repent. On the other hand, one doesn't have a duty to forgive if the person will not or cannot repent, for this entails overlooking or minimizing their behavior. In the Christian Middle Ages, the sacrament of penance offered restitution after confession and contrition, and these were the prerequisites for forgiveness. The simple telling of one's sins didn't suffice. Without sincere sorrow and purpose of amendment, confession availed nothing, and the pronouncement of absolution is of no effect, and the guilt of the sinner is greater than before. The sacrament of penance was displaced by Protestants during the Reformation by a doctrine of free grace, an absolutely unconditional divine forgiveness. But to be more precise, these two understandings, that some debt must be paid that was incurred by wrongdoing, even if only an acknowledgment of it, and secondly, that all debts are canceled, that forgiveness requires no preconditions, exist alongside each other throughout most of Christian thought. Even the New Testament has both senses, authorizing both interpretations. On the one hand, the language of debt has been tied to forgiveness, as in the parable of the unforgiving debtor. Christ is often spoken of as paying for man's sins. On the other hand, in the spirit of Nehemiah, forgiveness is always available. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful. And you might remember this pisses Jonah off. Jesus, uh, yeah, I, I forget I shouldn't use language like pissed off, right? Okay. Jesus instructs his disciples that they must forgive, not seven, but 77 times. And the understanding is that it's extraordinary divine mercy that enables human mercy. At the heart of this vision is John 13, love one another just as I have loved you. This love is not only giving, but forgiving of human inadequacy. Radically, Hannah Arendt argued the opposite. Forgive us our trespasses. We forgive those who trespass against us begins, she says, with the human initiative of forgiveness, one God follows when he forgives us. Let's look harder at the unconditional model of forgiveness, for as a response to injury, it seems like such a radical departure from the economics of retribution. Again, instead of requiring the injurer to pay for their hurting, or instead of hurting them back for hurting, the idea of unconditional forgiveness is that the injurer is freely forgiven. Several contemporary philosophers, 
Jankelovich and Derrida among them, have stressed that for forgiveness to truly be forgiveness and not in some way be compromised, it needs to be unconditional in this way. This includes not requiring the work of confession, contrition, or even apology, all of which they understand as kinds of payment for wrongdoing, a bargain in which an apology or penance is paid for forgiveness, thereby selling with an economic exaction the purity of free, gratuitous forgiveness. An unsympathetic caricature of bargains is easy enough to imagine. You would confess to a priest your sin. He says, say, say five Hail Marys and seven Our Fathers and you're forgiven. That's the kind of cheap economic version. But while Jankelovich and Derrida hold out for the purity of free forgiveness, it's important to remember that both, for all their differences, see it as impossible for humans. Nonetheless, so attractive is this unmerited grace, so compelling is this idea of gratuitously given unconditional forgiveness, that even as Derrida found it humanly impossible, he was induced to rethink what he means by impossible. Maybe he wrote, the impossible is just what's beyond the conditions of possibility. Therefore, something we can think, aspire toward, correct our own forgiveness in light of, even if we can't actualize. He writes, forgiveness of the unforgivable, and that's the only proper meaning of forgiveness for him, does not exist as possible, it only exists by exempting itself from the law of the possible. And Jankelovich writes of the madness of forgiveness. For him, unconditional forgiveness is a forgiveness without reason. If it has a reason, then there was something forgivable about the transgression after all. So forgiveness was merited after all and not freely given. Absolute, unconditional forgiveness must not lower the severity of the crime to forgive it, must not make it reasonable. Reason must not mitigate the injury, and neither must the passage of time. Derrida underscored what theologians have long noted about the biblical traditions, again, that an economics of forgiveness, one that makes forgiveness conditional upon some act by the perpetrator, has existed alongside an aneconomic model of forgiveness, whereby forgiveness is unconditional, an absolutely free gift to one who can do and does nothing to deserve it. He has voiced grave and surely responsible suspicions of the economic model. One of the reasons he's so suspicious of conditional forgiveness is that he sees a veritable explosion of scenes of repentance, confession, forgiveness, or apology, in which, quote, not only individual but entire communities, professional corporations, representatives of ecclesiastical hierarchies, sovereigns, and heads of state are asking for forgiveness. He refers to the Japanese Prime Minister's public apology to the people of South Korea and China, to Pope Paul John, uh, John Paul II's apology to the, on behalf of the Roman Catholic Church for silence in the face of Nazi atrocities. And he worries that these gestures, while they may be important, could be strategic ruses, political publicity that compromises the real meaning of real forgiveness. Jankelovich points to the problem of the victim, for the most victimized are dead, and how can they be apologized to? How can the dead forgive? Either apologizing, that makes me think of Romeo and Juliet, either apologizing for our ancestors' crimes or offering forgiveness on behalf of the dead victims can seem far more like a political gesture than a movement toward genuine restoration. Conditional forgiveness harbors other perils. Not only are the terribly victimized dead, but the speaking, living victims, when they do forgive, engage in an act of sovereignty over the injurer, 
They arrogate to themselves the power to forgive, a kind of violence of sovereignty. Who are they to hold the well-being of your conscience in their hands? It seems that forgiveness, then, is also infected, like so many of our models of justice, with economic thinking. And then we could only turn to an impossible forgiveness, one that can never be actualized. I don't think these are our only options. With due respect for the hazards of economic, conditional understanding of forgiveness, I'm going to ultimately embrace it. If what we mean by forgiveness is a completely free gift offered to the unforgivable, one that erases the effects of the injury in order to achieve restoration. I'd like to suggest that this demand of free forgiveness may not only be impossible, but perhaps undesirable. We would have a world in which perpetrators of injuries learn nothing. In that world, how would we begin to understand what is imagined as the good and what is not? In conditional forgiveness, I see an opportunity for restoration of broken relations between a victim and injurer, a restoration of the ethical order, and one that isn't just unilateral. As Prospero said, they being penitent, the sole drift of my purpose doth extend, not a frown further. They being penitent, so it's conditional. To think this, it is important to distinguish the economics of punishment from that of forgiveness. The object exchanged is, after all, quite different. In one case, harm, in the other, good. In one case, reciprocal willing of injury. In another, reciprocal willing of repair. Furthermore, you can't owe forgiveness as an agent or earn it as a recipient in the standard senses of owe and earn. So forgiveness is beyond all appraisive questions of merit or desert or contract. Forgiveness is relational between someone who harms and someone harmed. Their relation is broken, and initiatives and responses are required from both to heal. Let me depict this first as communication and then as narrative. From the side of the injured issues the rebuke, from the injurer acknowledgement or confession, from the injured an offering of help, from the injurer remorse, from the injured acceptance of that remorse, from the injurer apology, from the injured forgiveness. Forgiveness then is a process, a long labor, perhaps as great a labor as the work of mourning. To return to Hamlet for a moment, when he craves committing physical harm itself, he rages against the uselessness of words. Why, what an ass am I? This is most brave that I, the son of a dear father murdered, prompted to my revenge by heaven and hell, must like a whore unpack my words, my heart with words, and fall a-cursing like a very blab, a scullion. Fie upon it, foe, about my brain. I've heard that guilty creatures sitting at a play have by the very cunning of the scene been struck, so to the soul that presently they've proclaimed their malfactions. For murder, though it have no tongue, will speak with most miraculous organ. I'll have these players play something like the murder of my father before mine uncle. Interestingly, all of his talk of words insufficiency leads him to the conclusion that a play is exactly what he needs. Witnessing a play, one can be struck to the soul. And again, this tangible language is notable. So struck that he proclaims his wrongdoing. Hamlet tells us that a play can function as a rebuke, even prompt confession. We saw that Hamlet stages his rebuke of his mother theatrically, holding up mirrors and portraits, and it may not be too much to suggest that the play stages a theater of rebuke, holding up that mirror to nature to prompt an ethical response in its audience. In the imagined unjust world inhabited by Hamlet, 
and also by Prospero, and also the biblical story of Joseph, which has a prolonged scene of rebuke in it. Rebuke is the stuff of fiction within fictions in all, all of these instances. Plays are performed, magic is conjured, dramas are orchestrated, persona are manipulated, all in the service of restoring a broken world. No direct confrontations, but indirection. Substitutions, no immediate response, but delayed action. Allow remorse and apology to grow unhampered by the defenses set in motion by personal accusation. Ironically, the passing of time and the substitutions of personae that make the project of revenge impossible enable the project of forgiveness. This is not just the purview of theater, of course, but also narrative more broadly understood, including psychoanalytic narrative, the narratives of history, and of literature. When injuries are revisited and retold, the work can be done of seeing when the wrong object was sought and of framing that error within a quest for good, of recontextualizing. The time of narrative then becomes the friend, not the enemy of injury, because it's neither the now of Hamlet that passing leaves him unable to address the past, nor the time of forgetting, of erasure. The time of narrative can be the time of injurers trying and not always succeeding to move toward healing, and of injured trying and not always succeeding of moving toward forgiveness, of humanity trying but not always succeeding to reconcile. Thank you.